Brother Philip, my dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord, young people, we come to a very important part of Nehemiah's program of the restoration of Jerusalem, the reconstruction of the ecclesia and the city. We come to a time when there are enemies, challenges to the faith, testing times for Nehemiah and his companions. And when there is a common enemy, brethren and sisters, without, when we're facing the challenges from the world about us, it's a relatively simple matter to develop that sort of mutual cooperation and the united front that we have as a brotherhood against the enemy. But when the enemy is one's own brethren, it's both disconcerting and it's disuniting. And many men of faith have had to face such situations as that. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had his Judas. The Apostle Paul had his Alexander the coppersmith. And so it was with faithful Nehemiah as he found that notwithstanding he was doing the work of God, but he had to face the challenges to his ecclesia. The work had been proceeding well, very well in fact. The walls were going up, the people were being strengthened thereby. And he had encouraged and supported and led his workers with him. And there was developed within that ecclesia an excellent spirit of cooperation and dedication which pervaded the whole of the scene of the work of the truth in Jerusalem. And the enemies outside for the moment had seemed to be nonplussed. We read in chapter 4 that they had builded with a patriotic devotion, with all their heart, we read, that all classes of society gathered together as the Levites, the priests and the doctors and the daughters and the labourers and the tradesmen they all cooperated together. But then there came in chapter 5 serious complaints, we read, within the Ecclesia itself. Voices of dissent. There was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. There was trouble. And at a time when, it's, when, when the work of the truth needed everyone to cooperate together because of the challenges of the world about them, Certain brethren were indulging in greed and selfishness and a complete lack of brotherly kindness and understanding. They were exploiting their brethren at a time of adversity, taking opportunity for their own personal greed and aggrandizement in the suppression of the poor. The effect of the trouble, as you see in the opening verses of chapter 5, is in verse 2, a family responsibilities and verse 3, business undertakings, and verse 4, national obligations. And it was under those three areas that the challenges came. And that brought the work of the truth on the walls of Jerusalem grinding to a halt. That brought the labour of the truth down, brethren and sisters, because the unity of the brethren was crumbling, and the work was being affected. And that was not because of Sam Ballard and the world about us, about them, or us. It was because there were brethren and sisters who were oppressing their fellows. In verse 2 they said, there were those that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many, 
Their numerous families were a benefit to the state. They had supported the work. They they had children that could work and labour. But it imposed a heavy burden upon the breadwinner. They had been working together for God and for Jerusalem. And this had taken time that would be normally given to building up their family resources, for them caring for their own. And the workers found it necessary, since they were engaged upon the work of God, to seek some relief for their material benefit. But their brethren had refused them. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Instead of helping their brethren and sisters when they had a need, these rich nobles of Jerusalem were putting them under heavy burdens of responsibility. They had to pay a monthly interest. It seemed quite considerable in those days. Today it seems rather meagre. It was a 12% per annum interest rate that was charged. And whilst it may seem to us rather light in our days of heavy inflation, in those days it was an extreme burden on them. And because of that requirement to pay this monthly interest, these families had run themselves into debt. And the problem that faced them now was that they would lose their lands and their vineyards. See in verse 3, some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy corn because of the dirt. God sent a famine to test the situation. And some were taking advantage of that, charging their brethren and sisters such an interest as was unbearable. And thus they were in danger of losing their land, their vineyards and their opportunities. And their work for the truth had placed them in a position of financial difficulty. Their work for the truth had done that because it had been caused by unthinking and unhelping attitude of their fellow Christadelphians. Now the question was, should they leave off building the wall to provide the interest that they were due to pay? And that's the problem of today, brethren and sisters. It's the problem of the today. And we face it in our ecclesia, in our country. Many find themselves in, in difficulties in their desire to achieve what they call a reasonable standard of living. And they become caught up in the present day life that can that they cannot give time for the truth because of their responsibilities to achieve what they think is the standard of living. So some families feel it necessary to take a second job that they might produce what they require, or enter into a higher purchase agreement for a bigger fridge. And there is a danger in such an attitude. We have to leave off working on the wall to do that. And that's where the danger is. If we have commitments that require us to leave off building the wall for Nehemiah, then we have a problem to face and to consider. The suggestion angered him. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. He was very angry about that. He called a special ecclesial business meeting. He gathered them together. He, he says in, that, that um, in verse 7, Then I consulted with myself 
And I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, Ye exact usury every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. The assembly was the ecclesial business meeting. He pointed out that the people were being impoverished by the greed of their brethren at a time when they were sacrificing themselves for the cause of the truth. That is the people, not the, not the nobles. They were sacrificing themselves for the cause of the truth and these nobles were demanding and taking advantage of that opportunity. So God's work was falling into disrepute, both within and without. And Nehemiah tenders his own example of generosity from his, from his storehouse, of his own example of generosity and service that he offers to help his brethren. But those nobles, they were acting like the Gentiles. They were acting like the heathen. They were not only selling slaves, they were actually buying them themselves from their own brethren. And that caused the truth in Nehemiah's day to be brought into a discard. It was causing the enemies of God to, to hold the work of the truth in reproach. What was the use of building a wall if by their actions they set God at naught? And so there was a disrepute brought upon the work of the ecclesia so that it seemed that God was not on their side. What's the use of us attending meetings, brethren and sisters? What's the use of us professing to be Christadelphians if our attitude to our brethren and our dedication to building the walls of the spiritual Jerusalem leaves much to be desired? We've got to be responsible to our profession and, and perform what we claim to be. Oh, but it might be suggested that brethren today are not dependent upon their fellow brethren for financial assistance. Well, we live in an entirely different situation. There is bounty in the society today. It's different from the case in those days when there was extreme difficulty, but there is no need of want in our world today. And perhaps in that the times have certainly changed. But brethren can still defraud their fellows, and that hasn't changed. They can still demand spiritual usury. They can still put them into bondage. And they do that by captivating pictures of new doctrines and new ideas. We have a Nehemiah in our times, that's Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts who assisted him, who have raised from the dust the light of the truth in which we delight today and it's possible for others to return to that darkness that was there before, the, to the bondage of apostasy by the introduction of error and costly principles that cheat their brethren of life and love and truth. And there is a prevalent spirit, I believe, of apostasy in many places, of indifference and laxity of attitude to spiritual matters with, that is comparable to the situation we're seeing here. The extension of which affects our brotherhood as much, to, our brotherhood today, as much as it did in the operation of the nobles in the days of Nehemiah. Because this is written for our education and learning that we might extract not a history lesson, 
but a parable of our times. So what is the example of Nehemiah? What does he do in verse 13? The faithful example of this sterling pioneer of the faith, this man whose example brought such a response when he reached into the hearts of the rulers, they performed his word. See verse 13, And I shook my lap and said, So God, it was a, a graphic pictorial example, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labour that performeth not this promise, even thus shall he be shaken out and emptied. And the congregation said, Amen. They would be faithful to the to the appeal of Nehemiah and praised Yahweh and the people did according to this promise. They would not exact the demands previously required. And the righteous wrath of Nehemiah eventually brought praise to God as the work of our Lord Jesus Christ will as he comes into the temple as we shall see later on this morning and and, and reenacts the example of Nehemiah against the error of his days. So the people rejoiced in the liberty of Nehemiah as he returned their lands to them, caused their lands to be returned, caused their families to be restored, caused their farms to be be respond. Because there was no onerous tax to pay, no heavy liabilities anymore, no unreasonable mortgage demands. And they were able to put their money in the bank and their hearts in the truth and they got on with the work that was before them. They went back to building the wall, brethren and sisters, and the cause of the truth responded and they learned to live within their means. Now the generosity of Nehemiah is indicated to us in verses 14 to 19. And we've got some personal uh, aspects from his own diary here as he brings this to our account and then concludes with his little staccato prayer. It indicates the example of his liberality and his faithfulness to, uh, to duty, his desire to help the ecclesia. It speaks to us about the Lord Jesus Christ who himself was so very rich that he extends some of his riches to us. And Nehemiah says he did not enrich himself at the expense of God's people. He did not even take a legitimate allowance from them as governor of the land because of the poverty of their circumstances. We read, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, even from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, that is, twelve years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor, but the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken off them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver, Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but I did not, because of the fear of God, because of the respect he had to the work of the truth. Yea, also I continued in the work of the wall, neither brought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither to work. Now, he says, my generosity, you cannot complain of my generosity, there were at my table. He provided out of his own wealth, for the benefit of the ecclesia, he said, 
At my own table there were 150 of the Jews and rulers. Can you imagine that feast? 150 of them. As they gathered every day to the mill with Nehemiah. Besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that were about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep and fowls and ten days store of all and once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required I not as a man from the ecclesia concerning the bread of the governor because of the bondage was heavy upon the people. He recognised the hand of God in all these matters. And so from since the people were in poverty he extended himself to assist. And in verse 17 he extended himself in helping the cause. He bent all his resources to the work of restoring the wall. And now in verse 19 this prayer that we are colouring in this little prayer this staccato prayer where he seeks not the praise of men but he desires the blessing of God think upon me my God for good according to all that I have done for this people it was a work of faith he was justified by works as well as justified by faith according to all that I have done. Can we pray like that? Can we ask God to recognise what we have done in works of faith and goodwill toward our brethren and helping and strengthening them? You see, our, God, our standing before our God is not based upon what we have said, but what we have done. And the basis of judgment, as we have it in Matthew chapter 25, is inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Inasmuch as you have done it, it's the application of works that counts. We were justified by faith at our baptism, but we will be justified by works at, our, at the judgment seat. And Abraham was justified by faith when he left Ur of the Chaldees and he was justified by faith when he sacrificed his son. And that's the basis of the judgment, brethren and sisters, is what we have done. And it is in the range of our actions that our true motives are heard and seen. Are we dedicated to building the walls of the spiritual Jerusalem? Will we stick by that faithful pioneer Nehemiah? Will we maintain our service to God and avoid the frustrating, avoid frustrating that which by falling into avoidable liabilities to the world? Are we going to do that? Can we, brethren and sisters, utter the prayer of verse 19 that God should think upon us? It's a wonderful prayer, that. And if chapter 5 opened with a picture of pity in the distress of many of God's people, chapter 6 that we have read this morning together presents to us a graphic portrayal of the confederation of Nehemiah's enemies as they gather together, huddling together to whisper against this man. These men had been absolutely frustrated by the work of Nehemiah They've been frustrated by the sincerity and the dedication and the determination of this man. What are they going to do? 
Well, already they tried in chapter 4, they tried to ridicule and the threat of force that caused some to be wearied. The strength of Judah is, is uh, wearied by the continuous labour in face of difficulties. And all those actions have been met and overcome by the energetic and faithful and prayerful Nehemiah. Now the enemy returns, brethren and sisters. They always return to test us. And this time they are going to use guile and hypocrisy. That's much more dangerous than force. When we have a challenge from the enemy without and he bends his arm against us and he flexes his muscles, it's easy, we see our enemy, we can challenge him, we can stand up against him, but when guile and hypocrisy is the cause, quite some difference. The company of flesh is meeting together in verse 1. It came to pass when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, it's already the walls are going up, already there is a protection, the statement of faith is in, is in position, and the ecclesia is being strengthened by the consideration of those policies. Uh, though at that time I had not set the doors upon the gates, the conclusion hadn't been there, that Sambalat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come. You can sort of hear the honeyed words. Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. The friendliness of it all is amazing. The loveliness of it all. Well, look, look, Nehemiah, after all, we're not so really different from you. We might have a few doctrines, theories or something, but we're not really so much different. There's, I mean, you're a Christian and I'm a Christian. And we can work out any difficulty. I'm, I'm sure that we can work out difficulties. We still have the, that we still believe in the Bible. We want to help you. We really want to help you, Nehemiah. So let's come and meet in one of the villages and we can discuss these things together. Perhaps Nehemiah knew the same principle that James says when he said, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And the serpent can say such honeyed words at times that can make us look at the fruit that is forbidden and we can be tempted to partake. And the world can look very friendly, very loving. It may invite us to join in its warming, hearty conferences, in its, in its happiness, in its lack of concern. It may suggest also that it's we're not really much different. There may be a few doctrines which we need not mention because they're a bit upsetting. So we'll have a pleasant time, time together. Nehemiah had no doubt about the attitude of the serpent's mind, the, the mind of the flesh, brothers and sisters. He said, but they thought to do me mischief. He could read their hearts and minds just as the Lord Jesus Christ did. He understood the true countenance of flesh the true reality of the enemy. And this must always be our attitude to the world. We must see the distinction, the separation between us and the world. We must not be deluded into seeming niceties from our companions in the world about us. Our, world's not in, our work is not in colleague with the world. 
It's in building the walls of Jerusalem. It's in strengthening the truth. See what he says in verse 3? I sent messengers unto them saying, I'm doing a great work. I am doing a great work. The work of the truth. So that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Why indeed? And what better answer could we have to the thousands of seeming pleasant invitations and provocations that a man might receive to cease the work that he is about to enter into useless and trivial conferences. Or to notice the surreptitious and wicked and malicious attacks on his labour or his motives. It doesn't matter what the enemies say. If we're about the work of God, brothers and sisters, we keep on with that. And that's our answer to the world. That's our answer to all unprofitable matters. That's our answer to strifeless about words. We are on a great work. We cannot afford to let the walls of the city languish while we mess around with profitless teachings and profitless words. We've got a great work. And it's not limited to leading a great cause or to building bricks of, uh, uh, walls of brick and mortar. Nehemiah was about God's work. His work was of the ecclesia, of the Sunday school classes, of the vigilance committee, of the stewardship, of the teaching of the truth, of visiting friends. And that was the work of the truth. Notice the three questions he has. Why, one is, why should the work cease? The second is, why should I leave the work? And the third is, why should I meet you? And that was his constant attitude in the face of the four attempts at provocation that he was faced with. His, his attitude always was, what have they done to assist the work of the truth? And that's how judgment, brethren and sisters, that's how we judge friends and enemies. What have they done to assist and strengthen the work of the truth? He that is not with me, says the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew twelve thirty, he that is not with me is against me. What have they done to assist the work of the truth? And that should be our prime concern in these very last days where there is only a little bit of the walls of Jerusalem to do. We're seeing the tops. We're seeing the completion of our work. The 6,000 years of history is nearly finished. There's only a few bricks left. The few opportunities. The work of the truth is our prime concern and important. And it's more important than individual desires. We must continue the work the, war, the work of continuing to build the walls of Jerusalem, even if it means ignoring provocation and threats. Ah, but now Sanballat, he's going to add lies. He's going to add insults and lies to his intrigue and his deceit. He indulges in a foolish action of open letters. So we read in verse 5, Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand, wherein it was written, it is reported among the heathen, and, and by the way, uh, Geshem at Skashmir, Geshem said it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel. 
This letter was conveyed by his servants with the intention that its contents should become public knowledge, a private letter to be widely circulated. And it charged Nehemiah with sedition against Persia and threatened to report the matter to the state, to the king. Come now, therefore, he says, let us take counsel together. Well, his accusation was patently obvious. He wanted to do what Judas did when he had 30 pieces of silver in his hand. He wanted to put his, his uh, companions in a, in a position of compromise. He was anxious to get Nehemiah in his power as Judas wanted to get the scribes and Pharisees in his power. Sambalat was anxious to draw Nehemiah away from his work in his city. What's Nehemiah's reply? It's blunt and to the point. In verse 8, Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. That's it. You're wrong. That's it. He didn't bother to go into the matter. He didn't enter into a lengthy discussion. He didn't send letters everywhere to determine whether the motive of Sambalat was good or evil. He just says, your claims are false, Sambalat. And yet, you know, brethren and sisters, it says in verse 6, that one of the claims was that thou mayest be their king according to their words. And thou also appointest prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now it shall be reported to the king concerning these words. He didn't deny the prophetic utterances of those who said there was a king in Judah. Perhaps Nehemiah saw himself as a man of destiny foreshadowing the, the, the greater work of the king in Judah himself who shall come. Perhaps he realised that what he was doing, though it was to be destroyed, was typical of that which Jesus Christ would perform as the true king in Judah. So Nehemiah was working for the king in Judah. He was his representative, as we are the representatives of the king of kings and lord of lords. And this was the answer of an honest, confident and dedicated labourer of Yahweh. The work was greater than his own image. The work was greater than his own personality, his own standing in the community. And instead of compromising with the enemy, instead of taking time out from ecclesial duty to deal with this matter, he sought for divine strength. Another little prayer that we shall colour in in verse 9. They all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. A short prayer as he considered these problems. We have a wall upon which we stand as watchmen. We have that duty, brethren and sisters. And our attitude to others should, de should depend upon their attitude to that wall. And as Sam Ballots attempt to undermine the wall, they are only strengthening Nehemiah's resolve to complete the work. 
They are strengthening his resolve to get on with the work, the labour. And some people are at the best when they're under attack and challenged. Now, open attack is easy to defeat, but the insidious intrigues made into the ranks of the faithful is much more dangerous. Insidious intrigue. And once again, in the record of Nehemiah, we see the spirit of Balaam, that character that is found in the letters of the Lord Jesus Christ to the the first century epistles. The spirit of Balaam, the spirit of compromise, the spirit of act activities is evident in the treachery of a pretended friend. So in verses 10 to 14. Afterwards I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, the son of uh, Mahetabel, who was shut up, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple in a special place of worship and let us shut the doors of the temple for they will come to slay you Nehemiah, yea in the night they will come to slay you so let's come into the temple and instead of encouraging and and protecting Nehemiah Shemaiah tries to play upon his fears in the house he tried to induce Nehemiah with his soft honeyed words to meet secretly in the temple in the divine presence in the divine presence with the threat come that they will come to slay thee well that sort of thing is a wrong appeal to a man of courage and it instantly put Nehemiah on his guard he detected the treachery and rejected the desecration of using the temple for that purpose. The desecration of using the ecclesia for that purpose. A man of faith would not do that. He would not defile the temple of the living God, the ecclesia, for such a purpose as that. See what he says in verse 11, I said, should a man such as I flee? as he holds his personal repute before them, his personal example of his labours. Shall a man like I flee? A man who had been absolutely dedicated to building the walls of Jerusalem, a man who had laboured with a weapon in his hand for 52 days, night and day at it, a man who put his complete confidence and faith in his God, a man who exhorted his people to put their trust in God with courage, a man who took their families into the open saying that every man had to fight for his son and fight for his family, a man who had deliberately exposed wife and families to danger in order to inspire them to protect the city, a man who had himself manifested an example that they they had to fight, would he flee like that? Would a man of courage like that flee? Would Nehemiah barricade himself in the temple, stopping the worship of God that he might seek personal safety? Of course he wouldn't. And that's why he says, I perceived in verse 12, I perceived that God had not sent him 
but that he pronounced this prophecy against me for Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. I perceive he reflected on the matter. By questioning, he uncovered the true motives of Shemaiah. He revealed a veritable nest of intrigue. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so and sin. And sin. And that they might have matter for an evil report that they might reproach me. They hired some, the scribes and Pharisees hired some men to go down to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness that they might get him to sin as they placed temptation before him that they might have a matter of an evil report so that they might reproach me my God we have a prayer my God think thou upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works and upon the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that have put me in fear that's a prayer of Nehemiah to his God. What a shameful group of brethren and sisters there was in that ecclesia. Noadiah, a prophetess, a Jezebel, a Jezebel of Nehemiah's day. We read of the Jezebel, that woman. Jezebel. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not just saying in Revelation chapter 2 verse 20 that there was a condition, uh, uh, that there was a similarity to the time of Jezebel and, 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 and Ahab. He was saying that there are sisters in that ecclesia in Revelation chapter 2 verse 20 who are usurping their authority, the authority of the brethren. You suffer that woman, Jezebel. It was a time of women's liberation in the days of the Lord Jesus as he wrote to the Ecclesia. A time of women's liberation. The effects of which we feel today in some quarters even in the Brotherhood where the advice of the, of the Apostle Paul is put into discard and sisters are invited to give the words of exhortation. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel according to that prophetess Noadiah to put me in fear. And they conspire together to defeat the work of God. They were the, that group there in verse 14, they were the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus Christ knew about. And every age has had within the Ecclesia enemies within and without. It's had its false prophets. It has its treacherous brethren. It has its Alexander the Coppersmiths, its Judases, its Demases, its Jeroboams. Who can give us real help and encouragement, brethren and sisters, when it seems that our own colleagues oppose us? When our own colleagues oppose us, who gives us encouragement? Verse 14, my God, think upon this. Think upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to their works. 
What a feeling of rejoicing and exhilaration it must have been as this prayer of uh, Nehemiah was answered. And as he looked out now, and he looked at the walls of Jerusalem, and they were topped, they were finished, in verse 15. So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month Elul, in the in 52 days, finished, brethren and sisters, despite all the hindrances, despite all the difficulties, despite all the attacks, despite the threats and the conspiracies and the opposition, the work had continued and in 52 days it was finished. And the ecclesia was protected and strengthened and Sanballat had been outgeneraled and defeated. In verse 16, it came to pass when all our enemies heard thereof and all the nations that were about us saw these things that they were much cast down in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And with the feelings of frustration and great anger, they saw it completed. And Nehemiah's voice was the answer to all criticism, all invective, all ridicule that may be levelled against us. This must be our personal attitude, brethren and sisters, as we draw into our personal lives for our own benefit the, the examples and the lessons of this book. Let us build the walls in the service of the King of Judah, for his presence is always with us, even though there might be enemies within and without where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. I walk in the midst of the ecclesia, says the Lord Jesus. I am always there, watching and observing. And in our days, the walls are nearly completed. We do not yet see the walls finished. We shall see that very shortly now, when the spiritual Jerusalem will stand glorious and in, in wonder because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, notwithstanding the, the evidence of the enemies about, continues in the labour. The Lord will be in person then, and all the difficulties, all the trials, will seem as a fading memory in the grandeur of our accomplishment. And that completes part of the story of Nehemiah. It completes the physical work of the walls, and now in chapter 7 onwards, he goes into building up the nation. The most important part. For many times there have been great leaders, great geniuses in, in uh, ruling a crisis that are a failure in the follow-up process. But it was not so with Nehemiah. Having won a tactical battle, he now gives consideration to the work of consolidation. As we now with the statement of faith in possession, with the, the, the principles of the truth manifested and declared, with the, uh, with the work of the truth clearly set before us, the principles of doctrine clearly set before us, we now must consolidate ourselves in our study groups and in our approach to the word of truth. And in chapter 7, he sets certain security precautions. He establishes a census of the population as a first step in restoring true worship 
within the walls of this city, there was a separation of those who were not acceptable. There was a decision made as concerning faithful and the faithless, and a rededication of those who were previously apathetic. And now having built the walls, Nehemiah looks at the ecclesia. He finds differences evidence over the whole nation. And therefore in verse 5 of chapter 7, he purposes a register, an ecclesial role. He said, My God put it into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up at the first and found written therein. The ecclesial role was gathered together that we might examine each person to see that they are being properly cared for and that they are properly responding to the work of the ecclesia. Firstly it was, the, the purpose of the register was, to show that the returning exiles were of Israel that they were baptised or that they had association therewith. So there was a careful screening of the people. All had to confess their endorsement of the hope of Israel. They had to seal uh, they had to, to, to they had to provide their, their credentials for their acceptance in the register of Nehemiah. So in the Ecclesia, whatever our past has been, whatever our position in the society might have been, there must be a common confession of outlook, a common expression of faith, a common link in our perception of the truth. There were recorded herein, in this long list now of chapter 7, of all these names here, there were recorded Jews who could proudly show their genealogy, which was then recorded. Earnest brethren and sisters, children of faithful Abraham, as it were. And there were Jews who had little to show. They couldn't trace their parentage back, their ancestry. All they could show was an outward manifestation that they were of Israel. Nominal Christadelphians, brethren and sisters, merely maintaining a contact for the faith not really deeply rooted and grounded in the principles of the truth. And then there were, uh, there were Jews who acted as Gentiles but now wanted association with the Ecclesia. Those who strayed from the truth for a time and desired to return therein. And then as you have in verse 46, for example, the, the Nethanims, they were Gentiles who were completely Jewish in attitude. They had rejected their Gentilism, these Nethanims, these children of Zihar. They had rejected their Gentilism that they might embrace their association with the things of the truth. And so you see in verse 9, there were the priests. In verse 43, the Levites. 44, the singers. 45, the porters. 46, the, the Nethanims. 57, the children of Solomon's servants. 63, the priests. And on and on. Priests there were. Priests who had 
previously glorified in the flesh and now wants to redeem themselves. Thus they were brought back tentatively, he says. They were the, the, the children of Basilei, which took one of the daughters of Basilei, the Gileadite, to, to wife and were called after their name. They sought their register among those that were registered, reckoned by the genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they, as polluted, put out of the priesthood. They, they glorified the flesh, but they were received back into fellowship, awaiting the final decision by Jesus Christ. All of this was performed by Nehemiah and he recognised in verse 5 of that chapter he recognised the influence of Yahweh in his actions. My God put it into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people. He had constantly put himself in an attitude of prayer to his father awaiting the results. His actions in all his ecclesial labours were God-governed because he constantly thought upon his God. If he proposed good, it was because God put it into his heart. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 12. If Nehemiah did good, it was because the good hand of Yahweh was upon him. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. If he expected good, it was because he constantly prayed to God that God should remember him for good. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 19, and 13, verse 31. And we could go over those later with you personally if you wish. In all those prayers, in all those circumstances, in all his ways, he acknowledged God because God had directed his path. The wise man Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 6 compliments the words of Nehemiah when he says In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And now brethren and sisters in chapter 8 and verse 1 And now it came time for Nehemiah's Bible school. He gathered them all together. He was going to have a Bible school, a fellowship week. In chapter 8 and verse 1, all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. A wonderful teacher was present. It's the first time he's mentioned in Nehemiah's record. He had been called back for this Bible school, this Bible week. It was Ezra. You see, Nehemiah's religions, his religious reform, had been affected in conjunction with Ezra, who had been recalled to Persia to assist, recalled from Persia to assist. So now you have these two great men together, at this wonderful Bible week, re- referred to in chapter 8, you had Nehemiah the governor, and you had Ezra the priest, king and priest. Nehemiah's name means the consolation of Yahweh. Ezra's name means he who gives help. And both these men had set themselves to bring a religious reform to the community. And they recognised that it was only possible by concentrating on the word of God. 
Nehemiah's word had brought the people to realise their need. Ezra now took over to educate the people in the word of truth that they might recognise their responsibilities. So you see, the people asked for help. They asked for Ezra. Nehemiah chapter 8. They had come through great trial and adversity. They had come through a difficult baptism. A baptism of fire in the circumstances of their lives. They had felt the strictures of the enemy upon them. They had felt the burdens of their own brethren upon them. And these circumstances of life had been uh, benefited that they drew them to their God. And now they earnestly desire to learn and to understand the divine ways, to relax in the word. And such is the lessons of life, brethren and sisters, when trial and difficulty come upon us, we can either rebel against the divine trial or we can be moulded by it. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about those things. For whom Yahweh loveth, he chasteneth, but be sure that you are a true son or daughter, because some are not. Some are illegitimate, claiming to be Christadelphians, but are not. It's how we react to the trials that Yahweh brings upon us as to whether we are his true sons, his true daughters, or whether we are not, whether we claim that which we are not. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 1, they gather together as one man. All the people gather together as one man in the street. One community, one ecclesia, unity in Israel as a result of the circumstances of life that had come upon them. Unity because of Nehemiah's gallant overthrow and defeat of the enemy. Unity because of Nehemiah's courageous example of faithfulness. And the people saw before them a man of prayer and action. And now they are encouraged to seek the impetus in their life. The gospel, brethren and sisters, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word power in the Greek is the word dynamos. Dynamo. You set it spinning and it gives you power. We, we used to have them on our bicycles, I guess you do here. A little dynamo that ran against the wheel or tyre of your bicycle and, and illuminated the lamp on the front so that you can see where to go. The gospel is the power of God unto life. It's got to be a power in us. Send us spinning along the way of life, brethren and sisters, so we show some light forth. And that's what they were going to do, achieve here. And one good example of faithfulness by such a man as Nehemiah in our times in an ecclesia can be a powerful uh, encouragement to become as one man. And where did they gather? They gathered before the water gate. The water gate. Just south of the temple area on the eastern wall it was. It had been built up, as you may learn in Nehemiah 3, verse 26, built up by the Nethanim. It's an appropriate place to gather for the ecclesia. The provision of water in the presence of Jew and Gentile. The Nethanim were the Gentile converts in Israel. That's, they had built that part of the wall up. 
It spoke of the combination of Jew and Gentile in the house of faith. And as they gathered for the, by the water gate, they called for Ezra, the pioneer of the ecclesia of those days. He said, it says of him in Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 that he was a ready scribe. A ready scribe. A man who had marked his Bible. He'd written in the margin of his Bible the feelings of his mind as he had studied the word. He understood the law of his God. He was a ready scribe. He was able to expound its message. And as well as that, as you have it in verse 10, he said unto them, Go your ways, eat the fat and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto Yahweh, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. The joy of Yahweh is your strength. He had the law inscribed in his heart, in the fleshly tablets of his heart, so that it had a reflection in his attitude and his actions. And Nehemiah's presence had a great influence on the people. But his influence was because the word of truth had motivated him. It was a word of truth was a fortified place, as the word strength means. A fortified fortress, a protected place. The joy of Yahweh is our protection. He didn't rest on his personality. He didn't rest on his name. He realised that only last, the only lasting value was in the conversion of fleshly hearts to the principles of the truth. Now in verse 2, Nehemiah records the very date of the revival. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation both of men and women and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. That was the first day of the civil year, which commenced in September, October. The seventh month of the religious year in Israel was the first month of the civil year. You understand that, I suppose that there were two periods of the years, the Hebrew years. One was a civil year and the other was a religious year. The religious year went from month 1 to month 12 and the civil year went, went from month 7 to month 6. If you don't understand that, see me afterwards. At <laughs> any rate, believe me, it was the first day of the uh, civil year, of the beginning of the civil year. So it was the New Year's Day in the civil understanding of it. it. And it was a year, it was a day that commenced with the blowing of trumpets, with the blowing of the memorial trumpets, as you have it in Leviticus chapter 23. And when they blew with the trumpets, as Leviticus 23 tells us, it was a, to awaken the people to their spiritual responsibilities. There was a new year before them. They had to respond to God's call. And only ten days later, the Day of Atonement came. The tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. They now had the opportunity to prepare for that solemn occasion. The trumpet was sounding on the first day of that civil year. On the first day of the seventh month, the trumpet was sounding. 
the trumpet sounding today, brethren and sisters, you've got it in Revelation chapter 16, the sound of the trumpets going forth, calling people as the trumpets are sounding to warn us. Ezra may have thought back to that day mentioned in his own book, Ezra chapter 3 and verse 4, he might have thought back to that same day 13 years earlier. Ezra chapter 3 verse 4. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. But the people then had kept the feast in fear. In verse 3, they set the altar upon their basis for fear was upon them because of the people of the countries and they offered burnt offerings but there was they offered them under the under the shadow of fear at that time Jerusalem was still in ruins at that time the altar had just been set up and now Ezra 13 years later comes to that place and he looks upon the work which Nehemiah had accomplished and he saw a people that had been protected by walls built by blood and sweat and labour and faith and he saw a people who had responded to the divine providence in their lives no wonder he would be encouraged by that as he remembered the previous experience and now in the work of Ezra and Nehemiah combined together the work of God had progressed and now he is before the people as one man gathered together in that square and for six hours the people stood in that square with a hot sun upon them. For six hours they stood in that square and they listened to the words of Ezra in rapt attention. In Nehemiah chapter 8. It was very dramatic, brethren and sisters. Imagine the scene. The venerable pioneer there, Ezra. The unrolling of the scroll in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and when he had opened it all the people stood up. The aged pioneer there he opens the scroll and in respect for both Ezra and the scroll the people stood up and worshipped. And two armies echo loudly through the half-built city and uplift arms like ascending incense provided the impact of those things and a hush followed as each head was bowed in humility and each understanding heart communed with Yahweh in silent prayer Ezra verse 6 blessed Yahweh the great God and all the people answered Amen, Amen with the lifting up of their heads they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces towards the ground. And then followed the reading of the scroll. Then followed a wonderful occasion. How impressive must have been that reading. And the Lord Jesus went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up for to read. And he opened as it were the place where it was written by Isaiah the prophet. He read before them and they all wondered at the gracious words which came from his mouth as they looked upon the prophet of Nazareth as they looked upon this man who represented both Ezra and Nehemiah 
And thus as we conclude our thoughts this morning upon this, we leave that wonderful scene, we shall recapture that tomorrow, God willing, a wonderful scene that spells to us, brethren and sisters, the great victory. There's another grand moment coming when our Lord Jesus Christ shall himself stand up before all the community. And in the book of Revelation, as he, in chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, he shall stand up before us all. And in verse 7, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, and when he had taken the book, Revelation 5 verse 8, then the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odours, which are the prayers of saints, arms outstretched to heaven, the prayers of saints like the ascending incense. And they sung a new song, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. They were one people in one square by the water gate, Jew and Gentile combined, Nephilim and Jew, having laboured together in their daily occupation, now gathered together in one. There's Ezra and Nehemiah and they are opening the scroll and their hands are reached to heaven, their heads are bowed and they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Our names are written in the register, brethren and sisters, in the register, and that's going to be opened. The books were opened, and he shall confess our names out of those books. And we shall then pray in verse 10, Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. There, the greater company, the one united company of all ages, shall stand together. And not Ezra and Nehemiah will be there as leader, but it will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, with Ezra and Nehemiah and all the worthies, shall gather together at the spiritual water gate, the place of life, the place of immortality, and there will be a prayer uttered that will bring together all the feelings of every age as we with our Lord Jesus Christ say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory. We've got a labour today, brethren and sisters, for very soon now. That moment of great wonder will come when we shall stand all together in the great open square before our Lord and Master.